Welcome to Roleplaying History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 110, The Best Game Modules, Published Adventures of All Time, from you, Part 3. Okay, so I know when I first proposed this idea, I said we'd do two shows, but we got so many requests for the list, I had to make it three. And truth be told, I have had a ton of fun doing the research for this, so uh, I ain't mad at it. So in order to give ourselves as much time as we can in order to finish the list, let's crank up the tour bus and get to it. We'll start today's show with a module that I'll venture pretty much every old school D&D player has played at least once. T1 through T4, The Temple of Elemental Evil, was released in 1985 for the AD&D system and was built for characters level 1 through 8. I know you just heard me give a four module range, but even though there is more than one module in there, there's a bit of history behind the project, so let's get into that. To discuss the Temple of Elemental Evil, we have to start with the Village of Hamlet. That was a 24-page booklet adventure written by Gary Gygax and published in 1979. If, by chance, you're looking for it or you've got one, that original printing had monochrome art on the cover from David A. Trampier, and he also had some of the interior art, though David C. Sutherland III also gets credit for some of that interior art. From 1981 on, the printings had a full-color painting from Jeff D. on the cover, and that's got a lime green border around it. Yeah, okay, I know. Look, it's me. I just have to tell you about these differences so that you know what version you've got if you've got one. I nerd out like that. Oh, and the Village of Hamlet got the module number T1. So if I'm going to tell you, let's be completely official. Now, as the story goes, the Temple of Elemental Evil was originally intended to be a direct sequel to Hamlet and was supposed to have the T2 designation. But as you'll remember from our discussion about the Lost Caverns of Shonkanth, Gygax kept putting off his creation of Elemental Evil so that he could work on or finish other projects. And so that jacked with the publishing schedule as a whole. That caused some materials to be released out of order, or in the case of Temple of Elemental Evil, not being finished at all. At least not finished in the version it was supposed to be. So the T2 version was never completed. And for the record, there technically were never any modules coded T3 or T4. At some point between the 1981 reprint of Village of Hamlet and 1985, Gygax finally got around to polishing up his version of the Temple of Elemental Evil, thanks to writing help from Frank Menser, and it was combined with Hamlet to form the T1 through T4 coded release in 1985. That version has cover art from Keith Parkinson and interior art from Jeff Butler, Clyde Caldwell, Jeff Easley, Larry Elmore, and Dave Trampierre. By the way, I keep listing out all of these artists because for those of us OG gamers, these artists were literally the artists of our childhood and early adulthood. I mean, when you see an Easley Pace or an Elmore Pace or a Trampier, you, you remember the time you played that adventure, who you played it with, what characters you were all playing. It really is nostalgia. And for me, that's why I do this show. Well, that and to hopefully get some of our younger listeners to try some of these old school games and adventures out. Let's be honest, you can kill two birds with one stone. The T1-T4 release was 128 pages with a 16-page map booklet, and it had descriptions of two towns, the temple, and four dungeon levels. And with this being a Gygax product, the dungeon levels are pretty hefty. 
The Temple of Elemental Evil got another revision in 1986, and it was then altered so it would work with the A1 through 4 Scourge of the Slave Lords. From there, the campaign works with the GDQ series, which means G1 through G3 against the Giants, D1 through D3, and finally, Q1, Queen of the Demon Web Pits, which for the record has the group matching wits with Lolf. All of this was eventually rolled into a massive super module with the code GDQ1 through 7, Queen of the Spiders. And we are going to hit on some of those other modules, so we're just going to leave that here for the moment. In 2001, Wizards of the Coast published Thomas M. Reed's novel, The Temple of Elemental Evil. They also published a sequel to T1-T4, the third edition module, Return to the Temple of Elemental Evil. Village of Hamlet got the fourth edition treatment from Watsi in the form of a module release for the RPGA. But I gotta be honest, there's not a whole lot online about it, which actually says more about the feeling of gamers towards fourth edition and less about the adventure itself, in my opinion. The Temple of Elemental Evil has shown up a couple of times in computer games over the years. The Temple of Elemental Evil was a 2003 release developed by Troika Games and released by Atari. And as of this recording, it's the only D&D-related video game set in the Greyhawk setting. The Temple of Elemental Evil has also gotten the D&D online treatment, as you can run the adventure in that computer game. Okay, so what's it all about? As I've said more than once so far, the village of Hamlet kicks off the adventure, and it has the group defeating a group of raiders operating out of a ruined fort near the village. That's the basics, though there's a lot more flavor to it, with the expected intrigue going on inside the village for the group to deal with throughout the pages. Once the group has gotten itself set up and established in Hamlet, they get to explore the dungeons underneath the temple, and that's set up to be more of an experience gainer than anything else, so think Dungeon Crawl. When they're done there, they head to the nearby village of Nulb, where they find themselves getting deeper into the intrigue of the village, and they wind up dealing with agents from the temple itself, which will eventually have the group entering the temple. There's a ton of material out there describing the history of the temple, but let's just end our recap with noting that the temple itself can either go really, really well for your group, or they could find themselves needing new character sheets before the end of the adventure. Kirby T. Griffiths reviewed The Village of Hamlet in the January 1981 issue of The Space Gamer. He noted, quote, Players get into their roles. The thieves stealing from the revelers at the inn. The fighters getting drunk under the table, end quote. Overall, he called it, quote, A very good introductory adventure, end quote, and recommended it as an introduction to D&D. The Temple of Elemental Evil came in at number four on the Dungeon Magazine list of the greatest adventures of all time in 2004. Dungeon Master for Dummies listed it as one of the 10 best classic adventures, noting it is, quote, the grandfather of all huge dungeon crawls, end quote. If you're looking for the Temple of Elemental Evil these days, you know the drill, either a used game shop or the DM's Guild. Okay, so I told you we'd be looking into some of the other modules that are a part of that super adventure setup that included the Temple of Elemental Evil, and our next entry is a part of that. A1 through A4, Scourge of the Slave Lords, was written for first edition AD&D and was published as a super module in 1986. Now, normally I'd be getting into authors and artists, but we really need to break down the history of the various modules that make up Scourge of the Slave Lords, so we'll get to the goodies as we work through. What we need to first understand is that the A-Series was created for tournament use at Gen Con 1980, specifically the AD&D Open Tournament. 
For those not in the know, these tournaments used to be huge. I don't know if they still are, and I'd lay decent money that they aren't, but back in the day, it was a badge of honor to have competed in one of these win, lose, or draw. The first two modules in the series, along with a part of the third, were the tournament's first round. The rest of the third module was the semifinal, and module four was the final. Now, as you'd expect, the modules were expanded and revised for release, but they also kept a bit of the tournament flair, as the areas originally utilized in the tournament were specifically marked, and the scoring system used for the tournament was included so that players at home could see how they would have scored had they actually been in the tournament. And how did the scoring work? Now, basically, all the characters who survive the round get points for visiting the largest number of areas described in the adventure, along with additional points available in each area to gain or lose based on these specific character actions. So, when you hear folks talk about competitive D&D, they're not really kidding. The Gen Con tournaments over the years really were competitive, and I think we might do an episode on these in the future, so we're going to leave that particular topic where it is for the moment. A1, Slave Pits of the Undercity, was the module released first. Written by David Cook, it was built for characters level 4 through 7. Jeff D. got the nod for the cover art, and he also provided interior art along with David S. LaForce, Jim Rosloff, and Bill Willingham. And D.'s cover art was an illustration of two Aspis fighting an adventuring party that includes a bearded female dwarf. This piece can be seen in a number of places online, so toss it into a Google search if you're so inclined. Published as a 24-page booklet in 1980, Slave Pits of the Undercity was the first TSR publication to introduce the slave lords to the Greyhawk setting and also place them into the central and southwestern Flannis. The plot has the adventurers being hired by local lords to track down and deal with slavers in the area, and they begin in Highport and work their way along, fighting orcs, insects, and humanoid slavers along the way. In the end, they get a map detailing the route of the slave caravans, which leads them into the next module in the series. A2, Secret of the Slaver Stockade, is that module, and it was written by Harold Johnson and Tom Moldvay. Jim Rosloff is responsible for the cover art, with interior art from Rosloff, Jeff D., Bill Willingham, and Errol Otis. Rosloff's cover is of two hobgoblins and an adventuring party. Again, Google search it to see just how cool it is. Secret of the Slaver Stockade checked in at 32 pages when it was released in 1981 and was intended for characters level 4 through 7. So, picking up where A1 left off, the groups got their map, and the module gives the DM a choice. They can either run an overland adventure of 100 miles to reach the fort, or have the module start with the party looking at the fort itself. The idea is for the group to stealthily enter the fort, eliminate the slavers one by one, and get out before the alarm can be raised. When they begin, they believe they're in the slaver stronghold, but they eventually realize they are not, and that realization leads them into the next module in the series. A3, Assault on the Area of the Slave Lords, was written by Alan Hammock and released in 1981 as a 32-page booklet with an outer folder. Jeff D. got the cover art not again, and his portrait featured five of the nine slave lords. Neralas the assassin, Mordamo the priest, Fitla the master buccaneer, Ejatsu the magic user, and brother Miljoy the monk. Interior art was handled by D., David S. LaForce, Errol Otis, Jim Rosloff, and Bill Willingham. The adventure begins with the group in a very dangerous labyrinth. In tournament mode, it's intended for the labyrinth to be completed inside of three hours. It's trap-heavy, monster-heavy, and used to lure the group into the hidden city of Sunderham. 
Sutterham is the second part of the adventure. It's the town the Slave Lords consider to be their haven, and the idea is for the group to role-play through this scenario, and a number of NPCs for the group exist for them to work with to exchange information. They also have to find one of the secret entrances to the catacombs beneath the city in order to complete the module. That's where the final part of the adventure takes place. Each room they enter is loaded with dangerous creatures, and at the end, the characters are captured, leading to the final module in the series. However, it's also been noted that if you were to play the scenario outside of tournament play or as a standalone adventure inside your campaign, there is a way to defeat the slavers and exit the area. We can't do that here, though, because we need to outline that fourth module. A4 in the Dungeons of the Slave Lords was released in 1981. It was a 32-page booklet with an outer folder and was written by Lawrence Schick. Cover art came from Errol Otis, and it was a group of Myconid fighting an adventuring group. Otis also did interior art along with Jim Rosloff, Bill Willingham, Steve Sullivan, David C. Sutherland III, and Gene Wells. We'll pick up where we left off at the end of Assault on the Area of the Slave Lords, with the group being the prisoner of those Slave Lords. They're trapped without any gear deep beneath a volcanic island. Basically, they've been left to die since there's a volcanic eruption coming that's going to destroy the entire island. The group can manage to free themselves, but they're running without equipment or spells. Basically, they're heading out the same labyrinth they came here through, but this time without the goodies they had to use the first time. They're also on the clock, since they need to get out of here within four hours or die. The focus here is on wit and roleplay, since combat without gear is practically suicide. Once they're out of the caverns, they have to get off the island, and there are three possible ways to do this. Attack the slave lords, though they'd need to find some gear first. Find a different boat to use to escape, or maybe swim off. Regardless, if they can find a way off, they can successfully complete the adventure. So those are the four individual modules. They were combined in 1986 to create Scourge of the Slave Lords, with all of the original writers credited, as well as all of the original interior artwork and artists. Jeff easily got the cover for this edition, and John Pickens, Brian Pitzer, Edward G. Sollers, Stephen D. Sullivan, and Steve Winter came on board to work the revisions. As I noted earlier, this series would be continued on into the GTQ 1-7 through Super Module Queen of the Spiders, and since that's next on the list, we'll just leave that here for the moment. In 2000, Wizards of the Coast released a sequel for 2nd Edition AD&D. Titled Slavers, it takes place 10 years after the events of the original. Kenzer and company got into the act in 2002, publishing a Hackmaster module based on Scourge of the Slave Lords, calling theirs Smack Down the Slavers. Almost sounds like a WWE wrestling event, but I digress. On June 18th, 2013, all four modules of the original were included in the Against the Slave Lords hardcover book that Wizards of the Coast released. They also tossed in a brand new fifth adventure. It was given the code A0 and the title Danger at Dark Shelf Quarry. Each of the four surviving designers of the original, David Cook, Harold Johnson, Alan Hammock, and Lawrence Schick, wrote forewords for the book. They praised their fellow creators, especially those who were no longer alive, and thanked them, as well as the players, for their support over the years. One more fun fact about the module, since it was used for tournament events, there are nine pre-generated characters provided along with the module. They have a standard list of equipment and prepared spells, and all of this was done so that players would be able to jump into the tournament with very little prep needed, and so that everyone playing in the tournament would be on an even playing field. It's time for reviews. 
Scourge of the Slave Lords came in at number 20 on that Dungeon Magazine list of the best D&D adventures of all time from 2004. Elizabeth Barrington reviewed Slave Pits of the Undercity for the January 1981 issue of The Space Gamer. She liked the art, but noted that the maps, quote, require thorough study before play, end quote. Overall, she felt the module wouldn't need a lot of reworking because it's, quote, recommended as is for AD&D enthusiasts, end quote. Jim Bambra reviewed all four modules in the September 1982 issue of White Dwarf. He gave the overall set a 7 out of 10 and said he believed in the Dungeons of the Slave Lords. They believed it was the best of them. He enjoyed the toughness of the adventures and liked the variations of skills needed to succeed at each. However, he did not like how the editing was done and noted, quote, these modules should never have been released with such errors, end quote. I mentioned the special hardcover release, but it's out of print now, as are all of the originals, so you know the drill, DM's Guild. Well, next up, I promised Queen of the Spiders, and so who am I to disrespect royalty? GDQ 1-7 through is the designation for the set, and Gary Gygax is the sole listed author for all of them, with one exception, which is Queen of the Demon Web Pits, where David C. Sutherland III gets a co-author credit. Jeff Grubb and David Cook also get credits for assisting with this huge omnibus release. Keith Parkinson got the nod for the cover art, and George Barr did some excellent interior art for the release. Now, when I say this is huge, I am not exaggerating. It's 128 pages with a 24-page map booklet. It was created for the first edition of AD&D and directed to groups levels 8 through 14. Now, in the last entry, I broke down all of the modules individually, but to do that here would probably take up the rest of the show. So what I'm going to do instead is let you know which modules are a part of this, and I'm going to give you their codes. The first three are three we already covered, G1 through G3, also known as the Against the Giants series. The Drow series, D1 through D2, Descent into the Depths of the Earth, and D3, Vault of the Drow, comprise the middle section, and Q1, Queen of the Demon Web Pits, closes it out. It should also be noted that if you wanted to make an epic, supersized adventure out of this, you'd start with the Temple of Elemental Evil, continue with Scourge of the Slave Lords, then finish up with Queen of the Spiders. I'm going to break down the plots of each of the modules, and I'm including the giant modules again since things were adjusted a bit when they combined them into this mega release. The first thing they did was to change the open. Giants have been raiding the civilized lands in ever-increasing numbers, so the characters have a dual task, deal with the giants, and figure out why they've been invading. So we start with the steading of the hill giant chief, which brings in hill giants and ogres. The PCs discover that the hill giants are allying themselves with other giants, and they get some odd letters from folks behind the scenes. That gets into Glacial Rift of the Frost Giant Jarl, where the group runs into Frost Giants, Yeti, and other winter-type monsters, while figuring out that there are even more giants involved. Hall of the Fire Giant King leads us to the last of the giants in the Alliance, and also brings in a variety of creatures native to these volcanic, fiery-type environments. The PCs also find a secret passage leading to the Underdark, the ultimate big, bad, evil guy, Lolth. Descent into the Depths of the Earth is a bit grander in scale than the previous three, as the PCs have to traverse several kilometers of underground, which we now know as the Underdark. By the way, it wasn't called that at the time. We get the introduction of a number of Underdark creatures that most of us know by now by heart. The Drow, the Troglodytes, Deep Gnomes, and a whole lot more. Shrine of the Kuotoya bring us those fish frog monsters and their lobster goddess, Bibdulpult. 
I know I screwed that up. Vault of the Drow is next, and it's an eldritch land in a huge cyst deep under the earth. We wrap with Queen of the Demon Web Pits, and it basically takes place in the Demon Web Pits, which are the 66th level of the Abyss. Defeat Lolth, complete the mission. How hard could it be, right? Queen of the Spiders topped the list of the greatest Dungeons & Dragons adventures of all time by Dungeon Magazine in 2004. Peter Green reviewed it for the January 1987 issue of White Dwarf. He noted, quote, TSR have proven over the years that they are capable of better products than this. Instead of wasting time with old material, they should concentrate on presenting new role-playing ideas, end quote. For the record, a number of players and reviewers noted some of the same things, as multiple modules were finding themselves being combined, then combined with other series to form super modules. We've covered a few of them here, but there, there were more. I know I'm starting to sound like a broken record here, but this baby's way out of print, so you know the drill if you want to find it. Next up on our list is a trip back into Ravenloft. Module I-10, Ravenloft 2, The House on Griffin Hill, was written by Tracy and Laura Hickman and released in 1986. Created for first edition AD&D, it was intended for characters level 8 through 10. And while it does have Ravenloft in the title, technically it's a generic setting module. Now, there's an asterisk that needs to be attached to the writer credit for this module. While the Hickmans get the credit, they'd already left TSR before the module was finished. They did do the outline for it, but the bulk of the heavy lifting was completed by Zeb Cook, Jeff Grubb, Harold Johnson, and Douglas Niles. Basically, each of them took a different section of the module to work up, and they did that so they could make the deadline for release. Clyde Caldwell, who was the artist for the original Ravenloft module, did the cover art, and Jeff Easley handled the interior art. Ravenloft 2 checks in at 48 pages with a large color map and an outer folder. It also has a decent collection of player handouts, pre-rolled characters, and a map for their use. There's also an event chart, which has preset events from the module on it with room for the DM to add more. Ravenloft 2 brought Aslan the Lich to the setting, and if you think back to our Ravenloft episode from a while back, Aslan would become a major player in the Ravenloft setting down the line. The module also has descriptions of Mordant Shire and a number of the moors within. Ravenloft 2 can be run either on its own or as a sequel to the original. That's your choice. Ravenloft 2's plot features the apparatus, which switches a monster's personality with that of an ordinary townsperson. Needless to say, this means the PCs cannot be certain who is who and whether or not people are who they claim to be. Now, I dig deeper, but Ravenloft 2 has a very interesting mechanism to it. The original Ravenloft module brought something different to the table, which is the concept of variable NPC goals and variable locations for key objects, which means that the adventure doesn't play the same way twice. Ravenloft 2 expanded on this, including 11 cards that are used by the DM to determine the vampire's identity and the location of various items needed to resolve the plot. So, like I said, I can't explain too much more about the plot because how I played it might not be the same way you would play it. I decided to pull a review from a different magazine than what we've been using. This one comes from the March 1987 issue of Adventurer magazine, which our friends in the UK know as a British magazine. Tom Zunder handled the duties, and he called it, quote, one excellent, if not the most excellent example of the genre. Following, as is so totally correct for the genre, the original Ravenloft scenario, Tracy and Laura Hickman have quite superlatively created the style and atmosphere of the classic vampire tale, whilst at the same time never allowing the players a plotline transparent in simplicity, end quote. 
Ravenloft 2 is also out of print, so check your usual sources for used material if you're interested. Next up is an adventure I know I'd get run out of town for if it didn't make the list, so fortunately for me, several of you insisted I put it on this list. WG7, Castle Greyhawk, was released in 1988 for the first edition of AD&D. It's built to be a lifetime campaign, as it covers levels 1 through 25, so it could literally be the only adventure your group would ever need. Castle Greyhawk was edited by Mike Burrell and John Pickens, and Keith Parkinson handled the cover art. Jeff Easley and Jim Holloway were responsible for the interior art, and the project as a whole checks in at 128 pages. The castle itself is actually a 12-level dungeon, and each level was handled by a different writer. The module as a whole was written with a more comedic style than you'd anticipate, with TSR allowing shots to be taken at itself, as well as contemporary pop culture. As has been noted on more than one occasion, the castle at the heart of the adventure is most certainly not the Castle Greyhawk of Gary Gygax. To give you an idea of what we're dealing with here, I'll lay out the 13 sections of the module. The titles themselves should tell you what to expect. What's Happening Now at Castle Greyhawk by Chris Mortica. Level 1, Against the Little Guys by Steve Gilbert. Level 2, It's My Party and I'll Die If I Want To by Rick Swan. Level 3, Too Many Cooks by Guy Blackmore, Greg Poline, and David Teepool. Level 4, There's No Place Like Up by Janelle Jacquet. Level 5, The Name of the Game by John Terra. Level 6, The Temple of Really Bad Dead Things by Greg Gordon. Level 7, Queen of the Honeybee Hive by Grant Boucher and Kurt Wenz. Level 8, Of Kings and Colonels by John Nephew. Level 9, Vices and Virtues by Scott Benny. Level 10, Fluffy Goes Down the Drain by Rick Reed. Level 11, Morden Kanan's Movie Madness by Ray Winninger. Level 12, Where the Random Monsters Roam by Steve Perrin. To add to the absurdity, some of the notable NPCs in the game were Poppinfarsh the Doe Golem, Molen Howard Larifine and Curlishims the Three Cooks, Inflated Ego, and Captain Cork, Mastaspark, and Bones. I, I think you see this is going to be one of those games. While Castle Greyhawk was a Gamer's Choice Award winner, the fan reception to it was generally negative. Needless to say, a majority of players who'd been looking forward to the long-rumored release of Gygax's castle felt like this was a slap in the face to him since he left TSR. We covered all of that in the Gary Gygax episode way back in the beginnings of this podcast. And these are discussions and disputes that are still taking place today, by the way. Believe me, do a Google search and you'll still find gamers arguing over whether it was just funny, a complete farce, or an insult to an entire generation of gamers. I'm not going to put a review in for this, but I will note that TSR must have felt like they did something inappropriate since they dropped Greyhawk Ruins in 1990 in an attempt to placate the masses. It's a much more serious, much more Gygaxian take on the setting. Castle Grey is out of print, and a grin, you know the drill. Next up is R.M. Ford, House of Strahd. <laughs> yep, back to the Ravenloft setting we go. House of Strahd is an update of the I-6 Ravenloft module, which was done to bring the module up to speed with the second edition of AD&D. Tracy and Laura Hickman get credit for the original work, but since they were long gone by this point, Bruce Nesmith and Andrea Heyday get the revisor's credits. It's a single 64-page book and one 32-by-21-inch map. Cover art was from Dana M. Knutson with illustrations from Clyde Caldwell and James Crabtree. 
And we finally get into the 1990s, as this came out in 1993, set for characters levels 6 through 13. House of Strahd finds our intrepid adventurers stranded in Barovia. They find themselves needing to find a way into a haunted castle and destroy the vampire master within, who just happens to be Strahd von Zarovich. While many of the original goodies are here, the revision adds things like gargoyle golems, updates Strahd's tactics, and adds a time track table so the DM can anticipate sunset and prepare accordingly. Gene Alloway handled the review for White Wolf in 1994. He gave the game overall a 3.5 out of 5 and said that it's, quote, solid and enjoyable, end quote, but called it, quote, an underwhelming update, end quote. That tends to be the overall thought online as well. Primarily, it seems to be that because it was a part of the original Ravenloft campaign setting box, there are a number of details from that box missing from this adventure, so it's really hard to run the adventure as a standalone. However, many of our listeners still love it, which is why it's here. It's out of print, at least in this version, so you know what you need to do if you're interested in getting your hands on it. Next up in our rundown is another adventure for the Greyhawk setting. Module WGR6, The City of Skulls, was written by Carl Sargent and released in 1993. Clocking in at 64 pages, the cover art comes from Jeff Easley and interior art from Eric Hotz. The City of Skulls is for 2nd edition AD&D and set for character levels 9 through 12. And while it was designed for use with the From the Ashes supplement for Greyhawk, as well as Sargent's own source books, I use The Evil and The Marklands, it's been noted that they aren't required to use if you're running the module, and they really aren't missed if you're not using them. The plot of the module is a pretty simple one. They're in the kingdom of Furiandi, and the king tasks them with heading to the city of Doraka, which is the capital of the demonic demigod I use, and break a valuable prisoner out of jail. Of course, there have to be a few twists, and the biggest one is that this is essentially a one-shot, and it's a raid, so there's not a lot of places to rest and none to re-equip. So while the king does outfit them well, they're going to blow through a lot of resources trying to accomplish this feat. No reviews here, but I will note that the City of Skulls checked in at 26 on the Dungeon Magazine list of the greatest adventures of all time. Next up on our list is an adventure that frequently gets named as the adventure that got players into D&D. Numerous online and YouTube commentators, including Matt Colville, have listed this one as one of their favorites. It's the box set adventure Night Below. Oh, and for the record, the full title is Night Below, an Underdark Campaign. Released in 1995, it was written by Carl Sargent with cover art from Jeff Easley and interior art from Arnie Sweckel and Glenn Michael Angus. The box had three 64-page books, 26-player handouts on 16 sheets, an 8-page monstrous compendium supplement, 8 DM reference cards, and three double-sided full-color maps with tactical maps on the reverse side for the use of miniatures. And a partridge... I mean, sorry. Night Below was scaled for groups level 1 to 14 and was really intended to be used as a starter adventure that would build the group up to level 14. And Night Below could really be considered to be three adventures in one, as each of the books was its own mini-adventure with a beginning, middle, and end. The rules also recommend that the DM give experience points out for accumulating magic items they find. Also, just in case the group doesn't level up fast enough, there are suggestions for mini-adventures both above and below ground to help fill in the gaps. 
Book one, The Evils of Heronshire, is the introduction for the overall campaign. The group starts off as couriers for a wizard who get waylaid by some brigands who want to capture the group's spellcasters, which of course means the adventure assumes the group has a spellcaster of some kind. The adventuring at this early stage is conducted above ground in the village of Heronshire and the surrounding area, and there are a ton of fleshed out NPCs for the group to engage with. Book 2, Perils of the Underdark, takes the group into the catacomb and cavern complexes of the Underdark. They also get into it with Darrow, Zvlerbnin, Illithids, and Rockseer Elves. Needless to say, the group needs to rely more on role-playing than on hack-and-slashing. Book 3, The Sunless Sea, gets the group into the Aboleth city of Great Shaboth and gets them into the final confrontation against the Aboleth. And they are the big, bad, evil guys of the entire campaign. Cliff Ramshaw reviewed Night Below for the March 1996 issue of Arcane Magazine. He gave it a 9 out of 10 rating and stated, quote, Nobody could guess at the gobsmackingly malignant creatures behind this plot or at the sheer scale of the quest on which the adventures must embark, end quote. When getting into some of the less combat-oriented situations, he noted, quote, There are tricks and traps, of course, but not so many that the majority of the party is left constantly twiddling its thumb while the thief goes to work. The emphasis here is firmly on adventure, not puzzle solving, end quote. He concluded with, quote, Night Below won't be to some people's taste, but the vast majority will absolutely adore it. Quite simply, it's one hell of an adventure, end quote. Night Below is, like pretty much everything on our list, out of print. Since I haven't said it in a bit, check out a used game shop or the DMs Guild if you're interested. Next up is one of the first modules to incorporate the Player's Option series of rules developed later in the second edition run. The Gates of Firestorm Peak was written by Bruce Cordell and released in 1996. Cover art was from Jeff Easley and interior art was handled by Arnie Sweckle. The player's option books specifically noted in the setup for this module were combat and tactics and skills and powers. However, if a DM chose not to use those supplements, it could be run in the standard style as the player's option information was added at the end of each description or encounter. Bruce Cordell got to put his best Lovecraftian materials to use here as he created the Far Realm, which is a plane of madness specifically for this release. The Gates of Firestorm Peak begins with the PCs tasked with stopping the evil conjurer Madrius. He's taken over the Dwerger in the complex under Firestorm Peak, and he's been conducting a series of experiments that have started creating warped behavior in nature and society. Hmm. Of course, those things have started to spread beyond the mountain. Because of course it did. Needless to say, if the PCs fail, Madrius will be able to take over the world. Not that there's any pressure or anything. The Gates of Firestorm Peak clocked in at number 11 on the Dungeon Magazine Greatest D&D Adventures All-Time list from 2004. Trenton Webb reviewed the module for the January 1997 issue of Arcane. He gave it a 9 out of 10, noting it was, quote, strong, if a little stargate end quote. He continued saying it, quote, would normally be enough to justify an adventure module, and it would be worthy of note for its solid design, varied structure, and high-quality supplementary artwork. Yet what really makes Firestorm Peak different is that it's designed to be used with both the standard and player's option AD&D rules, end quote. He concluded by saying, quote, The Gates of Firestorm Peak is a totally playable, if somewhat long, adventure for all AD&D hackers. As a showcase for the Player's Option series, though, it works as both an illustrative guide to the new rules and an advert. Because if you haven't toyed with the new rules, you'll be wondering just why its players get some large-scale maps and cardboard cutout pieces, but old-style AD&Ders don't, end quote. 
For our Planescape fans out here, here's an adventure for you. Dead Gods, designed for the second edition of AD&D, was written by Monty Cook and released in 1997. Adam Rex handled the cover art while Josh Timbrook got the honors on the interior. I don't think I need to get too much into Monty Cook. I mean, he's a game designer legend, so when he puts his name on something, you can pretty much bet it's going to be solid. Dead Gods is made up of two adventures, both of which revolve around the concepts of death and resurrections, specifically of a god. Each of the adventures can be run separately, though most of us would choose to run them together, as Cook intended. Out of the Darkness is the first adventure, and it's got nine chapters in all. The overall idea here is that the Lord of the Undead, Orcus, disappeared from the astral plane long ago and has since reappeared under a new name, Tenebraus. He's got a plan to take back the Abyss, and it's the job of the PCs to figure out who he is, figure out the plan, and stop him. Oh, and they're going to have to stop him twice, since his followers will be trying to revive his corpse, even if they stop him initially. Into the Light is a three-part adventure. In this one, the PCs are tasked with figuring out what's going on with an old, abandoned church that seems to be having some hinky shit going on. The antagonist of our story is using it to start a war, but the PCs will have to figure that out while figuring out who is responsible. Needless to say, they're going to get run through their paces in the process. No review here, but we will note that Dead Gods got the number 14 slot on the Dungeon Magazine list of the greatest D&D adventures of all time in 2004. Okay, so I've got five modules to cover on this list, and normally I'd push through and finish. However, over the past couple of weeks, I've also gotten suggestions from folks who want to hear their favorites get our breakdown. So, our three-week topic has now become a four-week topic. Next week, I'll finish up our initial list and get to the suggestions we've gotten since we started the list a couple of weeks ago. In the meanwhile, please check out our other podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. For those new to this, it's the show where we build an entire campaign for one game system from scratch. This season, we're building for the Fallout role-playing game, and we're more than 30 episodes into the build, which means our hypothetical group is knee-deep in the kimchi, as it were. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or from our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free, license-free music needs. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash badgmprod. On Twitter at badgmp. YouTube and Tumblr, badgmproductions. You can email us badgmproductions at gmail.com. And online, the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we bring our list of your favorite adventures of all time to an end. And I have to admit, I'm going to be a bit sad that it finally ends. So let's just enjoy it while it lasts. That's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.